This is ADH Television. The program has saved the nation. I'm David Flint, and the program is produced by Charlie Noble. My guest today is Dr. A.D. Patterson. Dr. Patterson is an expert in the field of nuclear energy. He's uh, Australian-based, and he previously was the CEO of the Australian Nuclear Science Technology Organisation. He's a strong advocate of nuclear industrial development, he's, and he's been nationally recognised for the work that he has been doing in this area. So welcome, Dr. Eddie Patterson. It's good of you to come on. It's very good to be here today. Good. Well, my first question is, uh, what, why, is you, why are you so interested in nuclear energy? Well, I, I was involved in um, back in South Africa in the Pebble Bed Modular Reactor Company, which was a uh, next generation nuclear reactor beyond the ones that we currently have around the world. And that um, program sort of took me out of being an energy generalist. In fact, some of the first groups that I managed uh, had patents on lithium batteries and I was involved in developing wind maps and other things. But once I became a sort of a systems-oriented person, I realized that you need firm, reliable energy in order to have the lowest cost of electricity to real consumers, uh, that is our businesses, the people who pump the sewage, uh, the emergency rooms and hospitals. Uh, when you look at real consumers of electricity, they want reliable electrons with a clean 50 hertz feed into their uh, electricity system that works all of the time at the lowest possible cost. So as a systems person, I then began to look at the logical options in the Australian setting um, shortly after I arrived. And I realized that people were talking a lot about renewables. And because I already knew about new, uh, renewables, more recently they've been talking about batteries and I also know about batteries. Uh, but because of my experience of nuclear globally and my understanding of countries like France that are, you know, fully nuclear nations, uh, I began to worry that panels plus wind turbines plus uh, enthusiasm was going to be greatly damaging to who we are as a nation. Uh, because there is clear science and engineering that clearly demonstrates, in fact, recent papers have reinforced this from a completely different direction, that it is impossible to have a 90% penetration of intermittent renewables in a grid. It simply cannot be done. The principles of engineering will not allow it. To, to make it really simple without being technical, you can't take something that's on 40% of the time, which is what wind turbines are when the wind is blowing, and make it 100% of the electricity that you supply to consumers in Australia. Now, that sounds like an oversimplification, but actually it's a principle. 40% can never equal 90%. And therefore, the whole premise that we have to massively expand the grid to have more and more of a 40% resource to try to make it add up to 100% is an act of madness. It does not connect to reality. And because we want a realistic grid and we want a grid uh, that gets the lowest cost to consumers, the logical thing is to lift the ban on nuclear, to take modern nuclear plants and apply them uh, in the Australian uh, setting. So the comeback is normally, um, it's too expensive and it'll be too late. And that possibly was an interesting argument until recently, but it's no longer true. Well, why do the decision makers, uh, they, they, talk they talk about renewables, but they always seem to choose, and I may be paranoid in asking you this, they always seem to choose only those so-called renewables, which are really alternatives to fossils. They choose so-called renewables, that is wind and solar, which seem to enrich the People's Republic of China, which seems to be the, the, the one country which is studiously avoiding reducing CO2 emissions, if CO2 emissions are the problem. So is there something in the fact that uh, our decision makers 
seem to always choose renewables which enrich the People's Republic of China. I think that I think that there are two drivers. The the, the one is um, an obsession with what I call cost at the fence. If you've got a solar panel inside a fence or a, a wind turbine inside a fence, um, everybody, the energy market operator, uh, their passionate CEO who believes in these is in these renewables and so on are obsessed with the cost of the electrons at the fence. They don't seem to care about the integrated cost to the consumer. Now, why the passion with something that looks cheap but ends up being very expensive? I think it's, it's, it's very simply um, a dramatic oversimplification of the complexity of, of running a modern grid which is associated also with a dramatic simplification in people's minds as to the primary providers of the generators of that electricity. I mean, wind is, is not renewable. Wind appears as a function of the warming up of the air in a stochastic way that is completely unpredictable over five days. So to call wind renewable is an act of madness. Wind is not renewable. There's nothing renewable about a turbine. What is reasonably uh, observable over time. If you look back in the history, you will see that the wind blows 40% of the time and that it may blow 40% of the time in the future. The sun goes up and down. That's, that's much more predictable. But interestingly, solar radiation changes all of the time. And in fact, we're coming up to a sunspot maximum now and we're getting much, much more sunlight at the moment in the kind of top of the 22-year cycle uh, than we were expecting to be. So our solar panels are working harder than we expected them to, and we were all congratulating ourselves on the increase in solar electricity. Uh, but when we're at the bottom of the solar cycle and the, and the activity of the sun is a little bit lower and the precession of the sun relative to the planet changes, we might have less solar electricity. So. I don't like the term renewables. I, I think if we called them the unreliables, <laughs> we would be better off. Um, uh, and, and so why would we then pick China? It's because it's a procurement decision without insights into national security. And if we take a long-term perspective of our national security, it is an act of madness to put panels and wind turbines as the primary source of unreliable electricity in a country that has to have the lowest safe, reliable uh, electricity that it possibly can have. And, and whether you, uh, where, wherever you are on the, on, on the carbon spectrum, that is always nuclear power. The safest, reliable, lowest cost to consumer um, source of electrons on the world if you don't have lots and lots of hydro, and we don't. Snowy Hydro is not a good example of a project. <laughs> um, we, we really, really need to move the bar in a fundamental way um, to saying what we want is predictable, reliable electricity that is under our sovereign control. Just the on only that, form of electricity. It's just on that yep. point of the solar cycle, just for our information, how long is a solar cycle and how low does it go in terms of producing electricity to what it does at the height of the cycle? It, it's, it, well, well, well the, the, the 22 year cycle that's based on the, the sunspot cycle, what happens every, every 22 to 23 years is the magnetic pole of the sun actually switches over. It's quite remarkable. And if you're interested in the sun and you look at sunspots and you watch the sunspots over time, they go, they go through the cycle. Now, even that sunspot cycle is somewhat unpredictable, and they were predicting it would be in, in 2024, perhaps. We now think it's going to be later this year we get to the top. So, that, you know, that, that is the behaviour of the sun. Over that cycle, they're not massive changes, but it's important to, to note that, 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 that the sun is not a constant resource in that respect. And then there are longer-term cycles, which in general um, move the position of the sun and the amount of ice that melts in different parts of, of the globe and so on. And in fact, there's a recent paper uh, which, which has been published, which demonstrates clearly 
that that we cannot really predict enough about the future of the sun to be absolutely sure that the solar panels are going to do everything that we, we want them to do. But much more importantly, the engineering papers that go to the whole mix that you might have in the country. There's just been a wonderful comparison between uh, Germany and France, for example, shows clearly, absolutely clearly, that the lowest cost of electricity in a market where this experiment is already being conducted is over. The cost of electricity in France with nuclear power is 40% cheaper than Germany, which has got more solar panels and more wind uh, than any other place on Earth at the moment. And the Fraunhofer Institute for Solar Energy admitted a few years ago that they'd underestimated the number of panels by what they called a factor of 50%. Now, that's quite a big admission for a specialist research institute building solar panels for an entire nation to say, we got it 50% wrong. But if you read the report they wrote, which is available on their website, it's a publicly available document, in the graph where it says 50% wrong, if you actually interpret the graph correctly, they were 100% wrong. They had built 100% and they have to build another 100%. That's why they call it 50%. So if Germany, um, which invented this idea that we can do it with solar, in um, three years ago, found that they were 100% wrong in their predictions of how many panels they would need, I would say it would be a folly to continue to insist that the panels that we think we are building that we've got on our roofs and so on is going to be enough. And already the Renewable Energy Agency is um, selling batteries to communities to put on poles down their roads to stabilise the quality of the electrons coming off their grids. The, the Germans, so, the, 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 the Germans um, obviously made an error and you're... You're right to draw conclusions from that. But the Germans at least did one good thing. They didn't blow up, they didn't destroy their power, their coal-powered fire stations. But in Australia, we seem to destroy a station when it's pulled out so we can never use it again. I would argue it's one all because they shut down 27 operating nuclear plants. And in fact, all of the uh, all of the wind and solar that they've built in Germany, well, the wind in particular, all of the wind that's been built in Germany has only just replaced the clean electricity that they, they had from the 27 plants that they shut down. Germany's remarkable. I mean, they can't blow up their coal plants. In fact, they've recently opened a brown coal plant uh, and bulldozed uh, a wind farm to do it. Okay, so, so Germany, Germany is rusted on to coal for as long as you can think about it for the foreseeable future. It's only in Australia that we believe that we can do 90% renewables. I mean, even the Germans, for all of their silliness about nuclear, um, know that they have to keep those uh, they have to keep those plants open. Whereas Sweden, which stopped doing nuclear, is now going back to nuclear because they've realised the wind turbines can't do the job. And Finland, where the plant that, uh, you know, the, uh, the anti-nuclear people will crow that the plant was late and too expensive. Well, I've got news for them. It, it was late and too expensive before they switched it on. But when they did switch it on about a month ago, the price of electricity in Finland went down by a factor of two. It went to half of what it was before because those reliable electrons actually improved the quality of electricity. Everybody switched off all the things that were backing them up. And, and the price of electricity has gone down. Not only that, that reactor provides heat. Um, and that heat is directed under the pavements of the nearby city to melt the ice off the pavement so that people can walk safely in the winter. It is also directed into the houses of people from a district heating perspective so that they stay warm in the winter. There isn't a wind turbine or a solar panel on the planet that will keep you warm in the winter or give you air conditioning in Australia at a lower price. Um, and, and so people demonize nuclear um, as, as, as somehow you know, dangerous and too difficult and we can get away without it. 
But in fact, they know nothing about an energy economy. They are, they're living in a consumer society, not in a real world. The real world is the world of pumping sewage. It's the world of having a national defense strategy that can actually keep us safe for the future. It's the world where, in a rational society, if you want a nuclear power plant in the back of your submarine, you would not be against having a nuclear power on land in your world. It, it, it's it's a, a sort of moral insanity to ban something on land when it's your last and first line of defense underwater. But there so seems I, to be... I struggle with this. Yes, there seems to be a fear of nuclear in Australia. I can remember... I think it was about 30 years ago in the, in the municipality that I live in, which is Waverley, which is, includes Bondi Beach. Uh, a few years ago, about 30 years ago, signs started appearing all over the municipality, put in by the council saying, Waverley is a nuclear-free area, which seemed to be absolutely ridiculous as nobody was planning a nuclear-powered station in the Waverley municipality or near Sydney. But this fear of nuclear seems to be very big, or at least was very big in Australia. Now the French, the French have a tradition of objecting to everything because of their revolutionary tradition. And if there's a problem, the solution in France seems to be to go down into the street and not only demonstrate, to demonstrate violently. And for a few months, we've been seeing that in Paris over something or other, I've forgotten what it was, but there'll all, always seem to be demonstrations and problems in France and revolutions and so on. Why have the French been so accepting of nuclear energy, do you think, the French people? I think there are two reasons that I can think of that are, are, are quite deep. The first one is, is that they are, they are a deeply democratic nation in a profound sense. Um, and the two anchors of, um, of French democracy are the municipality and the, and the, um, the equivalent of the federal government. The, the, the state-level authorities in, in France are not really taken seriously. They're there to improve your quality of life but not mess with you in any way. And so if you take the municipality, it's where I live, and you take the state at the highest level, usually the Senate is the brain's trust of, of French democracy. Um, in, the, in the Senate, there has always been two or three people who come out of the French nuclear electricity program who can explain to their fellow senators why it's so important to get this right. We don't have a single politician who would uh, probably even know an electron if it ran them over in the street. Um, and, 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 and as a result of that, the lack of a technocratic society um, and, the, and the lack of a discourse about the art of the possible as a part of what you might imagine or, or make up in your mind. I mean, talking of those signs that you used to see about, you know, the, uh, uh, no nuclear here in this zone, I take democracy really seriously. When I first saw one of those signs, I said to the chaps at Anstar, I was fairly new, do we organise the, the transport of our nuclear medicines not to offend the people of Bondi? Um, <laughs> you know, the, uh, because the, the nuclear medicines that they're going to receive for a diagnosis or, or even a treatment that will, will save their life, we, can we send it through a, a municipality? So the, the, people think they're banning nuclear energy, but they're banning the application of the mind to the best outcomes for our society across health, uh, uh, across uh, the economy, across the, the, the quality of life that we all enjoy. And so the symbolism of those signs uh, and the structure of our parliament means that a small group of people can ban nuclear and the rest of us are somehow compliantly obedient to that. And given my sort of level of compliant obedience, I wanted to honour the signs that they put up. And then I, it was explained to me about the history of, of, of anti-nuclearism in Australia, which I've now studied. And as far as I can see, it's a small number of people in a small number of rooms at a few moments of time who have become a dictatorship in one of the world's greatest democracies. Well, and we tolerate that as if it's come from heaven. I, I think you're right. They just suddenly, um, those signs just suddenly came out and I wondered about them, took no notice of them, of course. 
The British were the, were the British the first in Europe to have nuclear energy for electricity. They seem to that seems to be my recollection, but the French soon surpassed them. Well, why did the British slow down in relation to nuclear? That's a wonderful narrative. Um, again, I think it was the different structure of how the state operates. The British didn't go for water-based reactors. The, the British liked gas reactors. And, and because they liked uh, gas reactors, they built uh, first, uh, a first fleet of gas reactors, very successful, and then they got a second fleet of reactors, the advanced gas reactors, which they built subsequently. But because they were pretty strong on competition, instead of having one national platform to develop all of that, which is still a single company in, in France, it's now on, on, on the market, but it was a, was a state company. In Britain, they put it out to tender, and there were five different competitors for the, the AGI, the Advanced Gas Reactor, very beautiful reactor. And so instead of having a fleet effect like they did in France, they had a fragmented portfolio of these reactors, and some of the vendors were better than others. And, and so they found themselves maintaining this fleet, you know, pretty successfully and, and completely safely, but it kind of sort of poisoned the well of it. Um, as to because they had no national ongoing capacity like the French did. The, the British are back. They're building actually a French-designed reactor at the moment in the UK. It's running a bit late, but it will it will stabilise the grid in that part of the UK. But but the UK is fully back to a full nuclear program, except in parts of Scotland, where they they maintain this irrational um, perspective. But, but the UK is a solidly nuclear nation, and Rolls-Royce, which is one of the partners in, in the submarine program, is a very, very sophisticated um, uh, nuclear player. But the UK itself is, is in a rebuilding of capability. In fact, I was at a, a talk last night in, in Sydney where one of the people who's architecting that is visiting Australia to help us think. And he was saying, you know, very clearly, don't lose the capabilities that you you have, which at the moment is is fairly limited in the form of, of Lucas Heights and a nuclear submarine program, because you're going to you you're going to need nuclear. And and he was saying that the whole discussion was how do you build a robust industry supply chain, uh, efficient build, get it done on time, and that's really the debate we should be having. In fact, that is the debate that I, I am having. I, I'm, I'm you know, an optimist. I believe the ban will eventually be lifted. But the challenge in our democracy um, is that the energy minister can be an incompetent. In, in Finland, you can't occupy a position in the cabinet unless you have been trained uh, for at least six weeks in how the energy system works because you die in the cold if you don't have nuclear electrons in your grid. In Australia, you know, if you're at Bondi, Bondi Beach and, and the sun's really hot, you paddle out a bit further and wait for a big wave. Right? <laughs> um, if, you, if you're in a teal environment, you, you hope the electricity will stay on so you can have a bigger latte or a piccolo or something. Um, you know, and so to me, the, the kind of the movement that, that, that somehow you know, the city-based teal movement is going to, you know, is going to kind of rescue our democracy from the polarities that we experience. It's going to get worse because people who don't even know how electricity arrives in their home become the arbiters of how it will arrive in 40 years' time. Yes, you're, you're right. The politicians seem to be particularly uninformed. One of the things they tell us, the decision-makers tell us, with their obsession with wind and solar is that the problem of irregularity, unreliability, is all going to be overcome by battery storage. I, I think you, you see the holes in that, don't you? I do. I mean, I was privileged um, to negotiate a patent in the middle of the 1990s with Toshiba in Japan for lithium uh, NMC technology that was developed in my lab in South Africa. So I had a battery lab. I had one of the best battery groups in the world. Uh, the leader, a guy called Mike Thackeray, had been trained by John Goodenough, who got the Nobel Prize. 
Okay. So there was a, you know, I was sort of third in the line um, from good enough to Mike Thackeray to me. I, was, I wasn't working on those batteries. I was working on sodium chloride high temperature batteries. But Mike worked for me and um, he and Ros Gummo made this breakthrough and we patented it and we sold lithium battery uh, patents to Toshiba. So when people say to me, one, batteries are renewable, I can tell you they're not. They are incredibly resource intensive. Um, the average, if we take every Aussie and give them a battery at home to look after their daily needs of just under 10 kilowatt hours of electricity, those batteries will weigh more than everybody in Australia weighs. <laughs> so, so, so the test, we, and, and that's before you have one in your vehicle. Is, is, and that's before you have one looking after all the electricity that goes into your industry. Is this why you can't have electric planes? Is this why you can't have electric planes? You can have short distance electric planes. <laughs> In fact, there, there is an electric plane uh, that they've, they've trialed that, that flies from one of the uh, Shetland Islands to the north of Scotland. Um, and they mainly use that as a, as, a, as a test route for these battery planes because you'll easily be able to pick the people out of the water before it sinks. But, <laughs> but it's an act of madness yes. to, to believe that, that we will ever have uh, battery-driven aircraft. Mr. Um, Bowen, and, if, and, I, and if so I could interrupt you, Mr. Bowen says that uh, nuclear energy is far too expensive compared with uh, what he calls reliables, that is solar and wind. Far too expensive. Uh, is he making a mistake I'm there? Did, way and, and just did the CSIRO also make a mistake there? Yes, in, in fact, I've spent many hours um, trying to persuade people in the, who do the GenCost report. Um, and, and even when I was at, at ANSTO, I, I tried to, to get them to do this. And by the way, I had great help in that debate uh, from Kim Carr, um, who, uh, you know, is not a, a natural ally. In, he, he's a great ally in uh, rational approaches to knowledge. And... I showed him that the GenCost report made no sense. And he and subsequent ministers, Ian McFarlane and others, helped us get CSIRO into a room with me and a few people who supported me in ANSTO. And we had a discussion with them. But the person who writes the GenCost report is an economist. And he doesn't understand even what we were trying to say to him. The second author is a proponent of wave power. I call it wave power. Um, uh, and, and so these two people, who, they've now got a third author and I haven't had time to look up that person's CV. There are then about 15 spreadsheets which you could use to model, um, you know, probably whether the sonnets of Shakespeare have got any new insights in them if you ran it for 15 years. So it, 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 is, it is a toy model on which we are basing our future. The GenCost report, I call it the GenCon report, is invalidated by the publicly available information on the website of the International Energy Agency. No um, energy specialist or economist would use anything in the GenCost report to say anything important politically, economically, or socially about the future of nuclear power. It is, it, is, it is a great shame on our nation that successive CEOs of the CSIRO and successive boards have not pulled the pin on this national disgrace called the GenCost report. The equivocation pages of the report are now nearly longer than the report itself. Uh, it is a blunt instrument for a single purpose, to maintain the fiction that we can do this with dilute renewable sources. It wouldn't stand up to scrutiny. Um, it could never be published in the journal uh, of a reasonably competent um, engineering uh, organization globally. Uh, none of the work is submitted to peer review. Um, people like myself in, in the nuclear side of the debate have spent hundreds of hours trying to bring reason to this debate. I frankly, the only thing that I do now is hope that I can speak to someone like you and, and, and tell you 
that it is a, an act of deliberate and consequential and continuing deception by people whose only agenda is to pursue this crazy renewables uh, dream. And it, it is nothing other than a dream. All the recent publications on the full cost of electricity to the consumer that arrives uh, with, a, with a price tag on it shows that nuclear and hydro uh, are the lowest cost sources of electricity. It is incontrovertible. It is in the published referee literature. It has not been challenged. The GenCast cost report um, is like one of those red crayon drawings um, <laughs> that somebody in kindy brings to school and the teacher says, this looks just like a mirror. I think we should sell it for a billion dollars, right? Um, uh, you know, the similarity is, is, is the, one is, the one is kindy and I'm, um, I'm, I'm excited by the fact that you showed some talent and the other is validated by an independent authority. What do, you, what do you say to those people who completely deny that the, that the theory of uh, anthropogenic global warming has any real validity? Uh, okay, well, this is, this is a more um, uh, complex debate. So I have done quite a lot in the field of climate science over the years. And my view is that the carbon dioxide signal is very important but it is not the sole signal. The thing that I think is most disturbing to me is the psychosocial impact of catastrophism in this debate yes. uh, on young people and people emerging into adulthood. Because there is, there is no immediate, urgent, impending catastrophe. Whatever happens with carbon dioxide, and, and that, that is disputed. And even what happens with, with the temperature signal and what are the sources of the signal, I can say to you clearly that now people are understanding the role of the sun, which we've already talked about more deeply. Because people are understanding the role of the sun more deeply, it's becoming clear. And in fact, there are some publications, I haven't read them myself, so I don't want to say that I fully understand what they're saying, is that we need to place less reliance on the single uh, carbon signal issue because the solar variability has been underestimated. And so I would, and that's even the, the official position, um, you know, in the people who do the climate modeling is that the solar cycle is not fully understood enough for us to decouple it from the carbon dioxide signal. You have to look very deep into, into the work of the different committees uh, that sort of build up into the global picture with the different scenarios and so on. So I would say to you, it would be fair to say that anybody who creates fear, anybody who suggests that somebody can ask scientific and profound and quite challenging questions about the one-to-one -one correlation of the carbon dioxide signal um, to, the, uh, to the change in temperature, or indeed that the change in the level of carbon dioxide is catastrophic because we know that carbon dioxide is, is a massive greenhouse gas. It's a very successful greenhouse gas. If you want to be a greenhouse gas, be carbon dioxide mm. because you'll be the best. But we're already right up near the top of the curve where if you add more, it's starting to level off in its effects. It, it's not going up in the straight curve that we've seen for the last, the, the, the last period of time. We also know that in geological history, the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has been much higher, but the atmosphere wasn't much warmer. So we know that the atmosphere in, in previous geologic periods could have more carbon. In, in fact, most of the stuff that we burn today, which is called coal, was essentially produced by sunlight. Now, people forget about that. Coal is basically stored sunlight. And it was created by exactly the same mechanisms of capturing carbon dioxide in plants that feeds us every day. And so one of the benefits of more carbon dioxide, and we do this in greenhouses, when we try to build, um, you know, grow flowers or make vegetables or you know, roses in, in, in the Netherlands, we add carbon dioxide to the atmosphere in the greenhouse to grow the plants quicker because they grow faster if you add carbon dioxide. So carbon dioxide is plant food at the end of the day.
for us, we breathe it out. For us, it's it's, it's not a good. We, we breathe in the carbon dioxide. We breathe out highly enriched carbon dioxide every day. Um, in fact, we, we breathe out about, about a kilogram per person across the planet. But no one's asking us to limit the population for some reason um, because that would save us a lot of carbon dioxide. Um, but just joking. I, I, that should not be seen as, as, as any sort of recommendation. But the, the point that I'm trying to make by adding these different layers to the debate is that healthy skepticism uh, and tough questions to catastrophists in the, in the, in the crazy case to imminent ca catastrophists in the sciencey sort of uh, people. I think if you find anybody who's serious about climate change, and, and I've, I'm, I'm a bit of a climate geek and I've published in the area of, of, of temperature um, in six different places in Australia down to Antarctica and so on with a colleague, um, uh, Matt Fisher at, at Ansto. So I'm actually a published sort of temperature scientist, so I, I reckon that's okay. But, but the, the key issue is um, catastrophism is not the same as uh, scientific scepticism. And scientific scepticism is the basis of good science. It is the ability to ask the question. And my question, having studied some of these things quite deeply, is that I still think we don't know enough about the carbon dioxide signal to create any um, impact on our society that would have dysfunctional outcomes in terms of people coming out of poverty, having a quality of life, increasing the cost of their electrons, any of the things that are currently contemplated in our electricity policy um, is more than just a um, lack of a meeting of minds between myself as an engineer and, and the people who run AEMO. I think they are wrong, and I think they are damagingly wrong um, to the future of our economy and to the quality of life of young people in Australia. I well, think they are a danger, therefore, to proper democratic discourse, and they should be required to come back to the science and take it seriously. Well, in relation to building a power station, uh, what are the advantages and disadvantages of uh, those fuels which will keep it going all the time, coal, nuclear, gas? Is there a distinct advantage between them or does it, does it depend on the circumstances and where you are as to which one you would choose? Well, I, I would, if, if one takes a, a generally conservative approach, if you can, if you can do, uh, if you can do hydro, I would do it because you know hydro seems to be more sustainable and renewable than, than anything else. That we struggle in Australia with that. We can't even do pumped hydro very well. Okay, um, but you know if you if you don't drill a hole that's long enough and good enough through the, the mountain where you're going to build a tunnel. And you pretend that when you hit some very soft clay rock that has got a water content that's higher than the clay content, that that's not a problem. You're going to have a problem with snowy hydro. So hydro is good. Um, uh, there, there are uh, cleaner coal technologies, which I would tend to go with if I only had coal. But the highest energy density uh, source that can work both uh, with dry cooling uh, and with the normal cooling that we use in power stations, and which can do micro-reactors in the red middle and can do large-scale reactors replacing existing coal plants. It would help build an economy which is based on nuclear, which is what's going to be in the back of our submarines. And so the, ch the chance of an ecosystem developing around nuclear power from everything from so-called nuclear batteries uh, through to gigawatt-scale nuclear plants in a democracy at the bottom quarter corner of the Pacific um, Ocean seems to be to be a national imperative for the reasons that you've raised about China, for example, um, and for the reasons of, of just having a sensible baseline. In the meantime, it's an act of madness to terminate well-operating coal plants uh, in order to add, add unreliable... So if you want South Australia... South Australia cannot provide a clean enough 50 hertz um, signal to run precision manufacturing machines in Adelaide today. 
You, if, if you are a precision manufacturer in Adelaide today, you will have left. Let me put it another way. People have left Adelaide because they cannot get quality electrons. I like gas um, as a peaking fuel. Gas, you can switch it on quickly. You can switch it off quickly. Um, it's very, very versatile. And for Australia, the, the carbon dioxide footprint of any gas that we use is, is not going to affect humanity. Um, uh, you know, laughing gas will have more effect on humanity than, than, than any gas that we burn. Um, and, and so my view is that, that um, the, the idea that somehow we are saving the planet, uh, being down at the bottom corner of the Pacific and, you know, being, having cleaner electrons than everybody else is, is a fantasy. Um, I, I think the, you know, the child of Africa that I am, if I had to choose um, in, uh, let, let's say, uh, part of, of Nigeria, which has got 375 million people, if I had to look at the quality of life of some of the people um, in some of the cities in Nigeria and say, what's the best thing that I could do for you? And they sat on top of some really nice black coal, is I would build in a modern coal plant. Uh, it's a moral hazard for me to shut down something that can give quality of life to people who are alive today because you're thinking that you might destroy the quality of life of people in future generations, but you're basing that on something that you haven't studied yourself. To the extent that I've studied the risks of future climate change, and given that I've spent a significant period of time in Nigeria doing science policy, I would place my bet on the people um, coming through universities in Nigeria being smart enough to solve this problem. And their quality of life is more important to me uh, than a couple of people drinking piccolos in a teal constituency, <laughs> panicking about climate change and something it won't do to them. Well, uh, can you tell us a little about the new nuclear power stations which are being developed when will they be available? Will, they be, will there be an economic advantage in Australia in using them? And I suppose the great advantage is that you can just slot them in if you're closing a coal-powered station, you can put in a nuclear station and that would fit in very much with avoiding the enormous transmission costs that you seem to have with uh, the so-called renewables. I agree. You know, transmission is at least 40% of the price of the electrons, right? So expanding transmission is just crazy if you can actually replace older plants. So what are these new nuclear plants? Well, I would say anything that is generation three plus, which would be the Westinghouse AP1000, which has been uh, uh, built in China. It's been uh, built uh, now in the United States. I think they're looking at building 10 of them in Poland. Uh, that's a pretty robust design. It's got a good supply chain. Um, it's, a, it's a very, very safe reactor. And I would say that class of reactor, which is a similar class to the uh, South Korean APR 1400, they both, both of those come from the same combustion engineering design many years ago. And in fact, South Korea and Westinghouse had an intellectual property fight as to whether they'd actually, you know, all obeyed the rules to, to build these two new reactors. So 1,400 megawatts, 1,000 megawatts, that sort of area, replacing stuff in the Hunter Valley and so on, your obvious choice is go to something that's been built already. You then get the small modular reactors, and the small modular reactors sort of start at about you know, 100 megawatts and they go up. In fact, you can get some small modular reactors, you add them together and you can get to a gigawatt. That company is called NewScale. They are already building their first plant in Idaho. And that plant is interesting because it was developed by a professor and 200 PhD students that he trained. And he wasn't linked to Westinghouse or GE or anybody. He was just a professor who was passionate about small modular reactors. And so the new scale plant uh, is a 77 megawatt reactor, which you can put in groups of three or six or up to 12. And at 12, it's 960 megawatts. It's a gigawatt of electricity. So what I like about new scale is it's uh, a standard fuel bundle, uh, safe fuel. Um, 
the fuel is, is, is getting better and better over time, so you can get more electrons out of it. Uh, and I would, if I was, you know, betting on having a good supply chain that would serve everything from quite small reactors in Australia to clusters of reactors to gigawatt-scale reactors, I'd be putting a lot of effort into working with new scale, for example. Then you've got people like Westinghouse and Rolls-Royce and others who've got these, these little ones and nuclear batteries. I think to replace what I call the diesel grid in the northern part of Australia, which starts in Brisbane and takes diesel out to regional rural communities, I would probably be looking at um, Westinghouse's Evinci reactor, which is a very simple stick it down on a concrete pad type of reactor, which would serve a, a regional rural community. And then when, when it's gone through its five-year life cycle, you pick it up and plug another one in and it goes on. So. So the how, how long is, is the life cycle? How long is the life cycle? So the fuel life cycle is, is about, oh, is the about fuel five life years. Cycle. But the life cycle, the, the, fuel, the life cycle of a modern reactor, we're not quite sure how long it is. I think it'll be 100 years. That's what I thought um, uh, when I read a little about it. Yeah. Uh, that they're, they're probably the longest lasting of all, new, of all uh, power stations, are they not? Absolutely. The, the, the Canadians have just finished a refurbishment of their wonderful Candu reactors, which is which is a generation one very safe reactor, runs on natural uranium, and and uh, they're at forty years already, and they get they're going to get out to sixty, and and so the idea that this is really difficult is is just wrong. Where there's a political will and there is an aligned intent, you can build up uh, a modern engineering workforce that can serve this region. We could be selling um, Australian engineering skills uh, into Indonesia, into the Philippines, into all the countries to the north of us that are going to need big nuclear. And they're not frightened of nuclear, by the way. It's only a few people in the bottom corner of a small place in Sydney. And, you know, I think there are three people in Melbourne still and maybe one in Adelaide. It, you know, we've got a tiny fraction of our society is still anti-nuclear. We've got a big chunk that are not sure and we've got a big chunk who've changed their minds back to nuclear. And, and, and that's why I am so passionate about this not being, you know, the fear of Chernobyl and um, Fukushima, you know, it, that, that would never have happened if they had, didn't have the diesels in the, in the basement. It, it was a reactor that was built in the 1980s. It was a generation one reactor. Um, the ones that they were building next to it had the diesels on the hill. It was a completely unavoidable accident and nobody died. So, you know, we, we look at, at, at the hydrogen explosion at Fukushima and people think it's a nuclear explosion. It was a hydrogen explosion. Um, hydrogen get formed when the fuel contacts with, 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 with air and, and some hydrogen is produced. Um, in the Opal reactor just up the road from me, that happens in the Opal reactor. Hydrogen is produced at the interface between the fuel and the water, and we just take the hydrogen out and we remove it. When you switch off the pumps, so the first, we still remove it. Yes. So the yeah. first step for Australia, surely, is to take away the ban, is it not? Yeah, the, the psychological step is to say we as a democracy do not ban things for irrational reasons and we lift the ban because we believe in science engineering and, and the any, possibilities for the future. And, and Andy, does any other country ban nuclear? Oh, there, there, there are quite a few with, with nuclear bans. In fact, Germany, you know, went back, you know, into the past to, to, to ban nuclear. But there's no country in the world that banned nuclear in a dirty deal, um, you know, one night in a federal parliament, that in a constitution that is not responsible for energy. I mean, the federal parliament is not responsible for energy. States in Australia yes. and territories are responsible for energy. You're, you're, a, good, you're a good constitutional lawyer. You're a good constitutional lawyer. You are right. It's not a federal matter. It's a state matter. You're so right. And yet... By banning nuclear energy in a Biodiversity Act, but not applying the Biodiversity Act to offshore wind, for example, 
we have the anomaly that we are quite prepared to murder whales, and I am convinced of the science that whale murder happens with offshore wind turbines, by the way. Mm. The northern right whale in the United States, you are actually permitted by the person building or letting you uh, plan the wind turbine, you're permitted to kill five northern right whales every year. <laughs> There's only 500 of them left. Oh, good heavens. Okay. So, Eddie, hey, this has been a superb... Uh, interview and I wish it could go on longer but unfortunately we're we're reaching our limits is there something a final message you would like to give to the viewers and where they should be going to read things and so on I, I think if you want to know about Australian electricity go to app electricitymap.org you will see every market you will see what the mix is in the market and then you can go and look at France you can go and look at Germany, and you can go and look at California. You can look at all the markets in the world. You can look at Ontario. You can see that the idea that we are a global leader in renewable energy is false. We never will be. Yes. You can see that countries that have adopted nuclear have got lower carbon footprints than those that haven't. And you can see that in the great state of California, they burn gas because they couldn't get the renewables to work. They couldn't get the renewables plus the batteries to work. And so they kept Diablo Canyon, their one remaining nuclear plant, open to stabilise the grid. Good. Well, I'm uh, afraid we must uh, draw this to a conclusion. Uh, Dr. A.D. Patterson, I, I am indebted to you. We are indebted to you, not only for coming on to the programme, but particularly for the campaign the continuing campaign you're running, which will be, if it succeeds, and I'm, I hope it will, and I'm sure it will, if this campaign succeeds, it will be of great advantage to the country. And you've spelled out those advantages, not only in relation to energy, but uh, in relation to exports and in relation to the development of expertise in Australia. So once again, thank you very much. A great pleasure, and I, I look forward to our next conversation. Let's do it again. And thank you again, uh, Dr. A.D. Patterson. This is uh, ADH Television. The program is Save the Nation. I'm David Flint. The program is produced by Charlie Noble. Until next time, and thank you very much. <laughs>